But more importantly than that, I think the best stories, more importantly than the conflict, the tension, the intrigue, I think the best stories tell us something about ourselves. They maybe give us a glimpse into what gives us joy or what makes us sad, or they maybe give us a deeper, more personal lesson about what we're facing in our life at that moment in time. The best stories, the greatest books, the greatest films, they tell us something about who we are, tell us something about humanity, about God. And that's why I believe the Bible is genuinely the greatest story that's ever been told. It's full of drama, intrigue, surprise, sure, it's got all of that in there. But more than anything, it tells us the most important thing that we can ever know. It tells us who God is and who we can be and who we are if we give our lives to him. And we know that God has mapped out this story. It's not a story that we don't know ahead of time. But the power lies in the fact that that story, the most amazing story that's ever been told, interacts uniquely with each and every life that's in this room here tonight. That's where the unpredictability comes from. So let's look at the story that we've been telling over the past few weeks. Where have we been? So this is a refresher for those of you that have joined us for all four of the weeks or a first insight into what we've been looking at over the past few weeks for those of you that are here for the first time. So in week one, we looked at the world outside of the Garden of Eden. We looked at what happened in the Garden of Eden, the fact that humanity chose disobedience and God kicked us out of the garden. And we looked at what the world looked like outside of Eden and then why we should be prompted to seek God and enter into the outer court of the temple. We've been using the temple as the kind of structure for this journey that we've been going on. So why should we enter the outer court? And we finished off by acknowledging who we are without God and who God is. And then in week two, we responded to that by saying, okay, we're going to seek God now. We're going to try and learn more about who he is. We're going to look at the names of God that are in the Bible, try and delve deeper into who his character is. Then in week three, last week, we spent some time dwelling in God's presence, recognizing that Jesus opened the door for us to be in God's presence when he died and recognizing that we can now dwell with him. But not only that, we are actually temples of the Holy Spirit. We are actually the place where the most high God dwells on earth. And as we come to the final part of this journey, this story tonight, we're basically asking the question, so what now? What happens when this journey ends? Where do we go from here? When you think about it, the fact that the Bible works as a narrative is actually a miracle in and of itself. It has a beginning that's full of drama that sets up many questions and mysteries. It has a middle that's full of intrigue, twists and turns. And it has an ending that's not only satisfying, but hope-filled. Anyone reading it from the outside would think someone had sat down and written it as one continuous thing. But we know that there was many authors that wrote it over thousands of years. Many of us all know that the Bible, the word Bible, comes from a Greek word that means little books, which is akin to a library. And I want you to imagine being able to go into Fullwood Library just down the road, if it's still open, and picking up any book off the shelf, opening that book and reading it. And that book then plays a part in a narrative thread that every other book in that library fits into. That's kind of what the Bible is. It's a library of books that have one continuous story. Of course, if we're of faith, we know that scripture is God-breathed. We know that God has been knitting that narrative thread together. But I think that this shows, the fact that there is a narrative thread shows us that there is genuinely a journey, a story that God and humanity have been going on and that we've got a place, a destination where we're heading. 
So in the first week, if you were here, you'll remember that we finished with Jesus's death on the cross and what that meant for us. Well, this week we're flipping it on its head and we're starting with Jesus's death on the cross. So let's just reflect on what happened when Jesus died for us again for a moment. Jesus was willing to die for us. He took all of our sin, all of the disobedience that we displayed in Eden. He took it upon himself and he died for us so that we could be made right with God. He was willing to do it, but it doesn't diminish what he had to go through, what he had to endure. When Jesus hung on the cross, his words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God speaking. We believe Jesus is God. Yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully God. So imagine what he had to endure to say to God, why have you forsaken me? How am I now separated from you? This is God speaking and he was separated from his father. When he died on that cross, he did it for you. He did it for me. And now we know that our, our, um, our look at faith should completely shift. In Jesus' death, that journey that began in the Garden of Eden was set on a new course. Romans 5 says, For if many died by the trespass of one man, which is Adam in the garden, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, and brought justification. Because earth met heaven in the Garden of Eden, earth crashed into heaven, we were on a one-way path towards death. But when heaven met earth and Jesus died for us, Jesus changed the course of our journey. Jesus's death on the cross is the pivot point back to paradise. In many ways, we've been drifting further and further away from what God intended our lives to be. And Jesus set us back on a course towards Eden. Since we were kicked out of Eden, we had moments of trying to seek after that again. We tried to make ourselves gods with things like the Tower of Babel. We worshipped other gods, trying to find something that would satisfy that thing that was missing in our lives because we didn't have God with us. But nothing would satisfy it. When Jesus came and died, he made it so that we could find something that would satisfy that missing part of who we are. When he died, the temple curtain was torn in two so we could dwell in his presence. And the process of building his kingdom here on earth really kicks into gear. When you think about it, the union of heaven and earth is really what the Bible is all about. They were united perfectly in the Garden of Eden and then they were driven apart by humanity's choice to disobey. And since Jesus died, we're now on a path back towards heaven and earth being united once again. We entered the present age, the age of sin and death because of what happened in Eden. This is the world post-Eden. Here we only had the temple which we've been looking at as our structure. The, the temple was the only place where we could really truly dwell with, in God's presence. Then God becomes human in Jesus and he makes his dwelling amongst us. And that word dwelling actually means set up a tabernacle amongst us. The tabernacle is the precursor to the temple, the place where God's presence was. So the idea is that Jesus, when he was here on earth, he was the place where heaven and earth intersected. He was the place where the union of, he of heaven and earth was perfect. And then he died for us so that we could also experience that union. He set us towards a destination. 
So where is it that we're actually heading now? Where is the end? Where is the destination we're aiming for? Often when it comes to eternal life, we think of heaven, this place that we kind of know a little bit about, we don't really know much about, but we know it'll be good. The Bible talks more about the idea of the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem, which is basically a mirror of the Garden of Eden. It's basically a path back towards that perfect, perfect dwelling place for man and God that we had in Eden. There are a few places in the Bible that it's talked about, but most prominently it's in Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We can see this really is a place where humanity and God are dwelling together as one. God will wipe every tear from each of our eyes in this place. When Jesus died, he set us on a path path towards something new but by looking at the old the garden of eden we can understand what this place is going to be like the passage goes on to talk about the beauty of the city and there's loads of symbolism in there that we've not got time to go into right now but it also says i did not see a temple in the city the lord almighty and the lamb are the temple so that place where the union of heaven and earth was allowed to be on earth after eden We don't need that temple anymore when we get to this place. The dwelling of man and God is so perfect that we don't need it. The temple was an imperfect solution for the issue that we had. The issue was we couldn't be in God's presence in a truly perfect way. So the temple gave us pockets, little spaces of heaven on earth. In the new heaven and earth, we won't need that anymore. There's no need for pockets because the whole place will be the point where heaven and earth interact. And to bring us back full circle, Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. We'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, we had the choice between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that was the tree that led to death. Well, in the new Jerusalem, in the place that we're heading to, we don't have that choice anymore because that choice has already been made. We've chosen life if we're in that place. The tree of life is there because we are choosing life. What a beautiful picture of God's dwelling place with us in the future. But you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but you said that a great story has a beginning, which we've talked about in the Garden of Eden, an end, which we've just talked about in the new heaven and the new earth. But what about the middle? Because that's the bit that kind of makes the most importance to us right now because that's the bit that we're in what do we do now in the middle it's a really important question to ask it's great that we can have an understanding or an idea of what this place is that we're going to go to one day but what does it mean for us now how do we grab hold of it how should we actually live in the world today if we've chosen to follow Jesus should we not just wait for that place and and be glad that we're going to make it there of course not We should continue to tell as many people as we can about Jesus so that they can share in that too. We should continue to create pockets 
of heaven on earth so people can meet with him. Remember from last week, if you were here, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. That means that we are the place where heaven and earth intersect. And that means that when you talk to people, you are creating a pocket of heaven on earth so that they can encounter God and be in God's presence. Jesus said that God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not all about waiting for when they're going to be combined once again. The focus is not only on being with Jesus when we die, the focus is on the Garden of Eden, the perfect dwelling place of God and man being restored here on earth. We're involved in that restoration project right now. And you might be thinking, how can mere humans be involved in that? That sounds like a big thing for us to be involved in. But if we follow Jesus, it's because when Jesus died, we died with him. If we give our lives to following him, we share in his sacrifice. Romans chapter six says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So by sharing in Jesus's death, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're compelled to live a new life. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. It's not that the new life we live achieves our salvation. It's not that that is the thing that actually saves us. It's a response of thankfulness. At the end of Romans 6, it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. It's not that the benefit of living a sin-free life leads to eternal life. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has won that for us on the cross already if we choose to follow him. The benefit of being set free from sin is that we can lead a holy life, lead a life of obedience. Remember back in the garden, the whole thing was that Adam and Eve chose disobedience. That idea of sin is basically disobeying God's intention for the world. Well, the benefit of being set free is that we can live that life that God intended. And this ties into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Remembering the story in Eden, what did Adam and Eve first notice when they were separated from God? They noticed that they were naked. They noticed that they were unclothed. They noticed that they were vulnerable, that they were potentially gonna be harmed and they could potentially harm other people. And since that moment, humanity has essentially longed for our heavenly clothing. Our heavenly clothing is the idea that we are living in the way that God wants us to live. For now, though, we need something else. The passage goes on and it says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So God gives his Holy Spirit to us. It guarantees what is to come. It guarantees the future promise of the new heaven and the new earth. But it also actually equips us here and now to create those pockets of heaven on earth. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able to do it. 
It gives us the, the, the potential to actually choose obedience, to choose the life that God intended. It marks us out as his children. And we're called to stand out from the world and live a holy life. So if we share in Jesus' death and resurrection, and we have his spirit living within us, then we're able to introduce people to the light. So did you know that if you're in Christ, you are actually a life giver? Did you know that you're a truth speaker, that you're a hope provider? Because of Christ in you, you are the light of the world, pointing people towards him. But the reality is that the world is still messy. It's still broken. The union of heaven and earth are not yet complete. But God has a promise for you in the face of that too. Romans chapter 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're facing the mess of life, when you're facing the tough times, know that because of Jesus in you, you are more than a conqueror. You can overcome. Nothing can separate you from his love. And in response, what can we do but to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? What can we do but to acknowledge that God has done something truly amazing and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? That's our true and proper worship. It's our true and proper response to what he's done for us on the cross. And it's the true and proper way to live here on the earth now in anticipation of the future reunion of heaven and earth. So we act. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What is it that God's asking you to do?